Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we're spending time with Ryan Friedman, who is a general partner for Alpaca, which is a seed-focused fund out of New York City that invests in companies that are shaping the digital and real world around us. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. You and I have met each other through one common investment in New York, so it's a pleasure to be able to dig in a little deeper into your fund and strategy. And so it's a pleasure to have you on. So let me kick it with that. Tell us a little bit about Alpaca. What is the fund and what is the strategy? Thanks, Thanasis. It's great to see you and hear you again and spend some time together. Alpaca is an early stage venture capital firm. We are focused on leading seed stage investments in the companies that are reshaping the real world. So we're looking to invest in the people, the products, the processes that really power modern commerce in the digital and physical worlds. And tell us about the name. Where does the name come from? Yeah, so it's a recent upgrade and rebrand. We were originally Corrigin Ventures, which was named after another business of mine, but the Alpaca team really had its own culture and its own vision, and we were really becoming our own animal. And so we went through a process and we came out with Alpaca and loved it. We believe that we are on the journey with our founders, the ups and downs. And so we are the Alpaca herd, and it's been really well received and a lot more founder friendly than our previous brand. Yeah, and I love that. For sure. Tell us a little more about what that means, right? What do you mean by powering the people and the processes? I know that you did early on a lot of prop tech investments, but now the vision is much broader. So talk to us a little bit of what it means for you. Yeah, sure. So our core investment strategy is really focused around two things. One, when David and I founded Alpaca was really around how to provide the best founder experience. We have built successful companies and now Aubrey's our third partner. We've all built successful companies in the New York tech ecosystem. And we really wanted to deliver a founder experience that we wish we had along the way. And so we thought we could do that by really focusing around our core expertises and the businesses that we'd built. So I spend a lot of my time around property technology, construction technology, and fintech businesses. David, around marketplaces and subscription commerce. Aubrey, really around next-gen commerce and e-commerce infrastructure and virtual communities. And wrap that around a pretty research-driven thematic approach with these field studies that we do. And so you'll see a lot of information published out there on our Medium page and on Twitter around a lot of the research and the themes that we're excited about and following. But these field studies, they're really 90 to 120-day sprints where we're looking to expand our core competencies, grow our networks, add a consensus circle of expertise around our backgrounds. And we're looking to become experts and networked in a space, form an opinion on the investability of that space. And then we go out and find investments around there, but really using this to plant a flag in the ecosystem. And it's been a very successful model for us. One that was so successful that our largest investor, one of the top 10 institutions in the U.S., has now anchored a later stage strategy for us to use that research to invest across prop tech and built world as an opportunity fund for our core fund. So really a nice complement to what we're doing now. That's an interesting, actually, I'm not sure I knew about the whole research study approach. So do you want to give us an example of that? That sounds really unique. 
Yeah, sure. I guess about two years ago, spent some time thinking about 3D printing and its applicability to construction and larger stage construction. Construction is one of these industries that's just massive. It's $10 trillion a year. It's a massive percentage of global GDP. It's 13% of the global workforce that works in this industry, but it's one of the few industries that has literally become less productive over the past few decades. And so as we saw 3D printing really taking off and being applied in a lot of manufacturing across the world and a lot of different industries, we had this question around, is this ready to be applied to large scale construction? Can we change the way that things have been built? Because they haven't changed the way that they've been built for a long time. And so in that case, we went out and looked at companies all over the world because the U.S. candidly is pretty far behind in this sector specific to construction. We'll meet with teams. We'll understand the material science that they're using, what's working, what's not, what are the roadblocks that we're hitting to really come around with our own perspective on this. And so we came up with a thesis that there was a huge opportunity here, and we identified a team with some excellent founders. I think nine out of the 10 original employees have come from Tesla. And so thinking about the problem in a very different way, we didn't think that a real estate team that has been doing this in the same way would be the ones to really innovate on this space. And so we've backed this company called Diamond Age, raised an $8 million seed round, and they are off and running, working on the future of what a robotic 3D printed home will look like, specific to your entry-level suburban and sprawl, your single family rental, your build for rent type of community that you see all over the US. And so an idea that we had a field study that really dug deep all over the world brought us to understand the right material science behind it, to understand the right market to go after being the single family home market, and then ultimately the right team that could really look at this in a problem solving way that was much bigger than anybody has been looking at this currently. And so you talk about being founder centric. What are some of the ways in which you and your team have added value to the teams that you've worked with? And in particular, talk to us a little bit about the OneHerd platform. We've treated Alpaca like a startup. And so every year we'll go out to our founders and we will ask for feedback. This is where we're trying to add value. What's working? What do you want? Where do you want us to spend more time? And I think that's really iterated our platform to what it is today. Number one thing that always comes back is fundraising. That's the lifeblood of these businesses and it takes a while to get these profitable. And so they want support and the right introductions. And so we've made that a core competency at Alpaca. We run our own CRM with all the Series A investors. We know who has money, who wants to see what kind of deals, how they want to see those deals and are really an integral part to the fundraising process from seed to Series A. Yep. And then we've put together an expert network that has been refined with feedback over the years of the types of things that people are looking for. So a lot of big brand, fancy name, head of product, head of marketing, engineering, things of that nature where they can come in and help guide in more specialty technical ways through some of the issues as these companies are growing. And then I think finally, just making sure that these companies have built a solid foundation to scale, right? So focused on an OKR process and whatever that might look like. Every company does it a little bit differently and, and is bringing their own world of experience to it. And so just taking a look, refining, adding value when they want help with that. And that's the core pieces of the platform. What are some of the other areas that you guys are excited about? I mean, you gave one example. COVID has led to a lot of acceleration in a lot of markets. Are you seeing that acceleration happen in the areas that you're interested in? Talk to us a little bit about the areas you're excited in general. 
The work from home revolution, the remote work debate that it gets heated more and more as to this should be the year that we'll figure out who was right or wrong, at least in some capacity about what this looks like. But we believe in a version of hybrid work, a version of remote work. And we've expressed that in the portfolio. We have a company called First Base that's really setting up the global infrastructure and a hardware and software basis for all of these companies that have tens of thousands of employees and managing that process for them. Andreessen just came in and did a series A with them. I hope to send my pro rata rights over to proof for later rounds. That would be awesome. But we're excited about that and all of the opportunities that are coming from that. And so we are long on the future of co-work, co-live, ghost kitchen, things of that nature. We think we're going to see a very 2.0 version of a lot of that. And, and I think a lot of the underlying traits and themes are there that are driving towards that. So really excited about that. Recently made more of an investment in e-commerce technology platform to really showcase what you're doing in the sales process tied to live commerce with a company that's yet to be announced, but spending a lot of time around the opportunities for live commerce. I think, again, you can look abroad at trends that are ahead of U.S. trends and learn from that. And, and we've been doing that. And then just back to supply chain, e-commerce supply chain as well, looking at efficiency around returns and what that looks like, looking at package delivery in the context of the supply chain, but also in the context of pain points for multifamily owners and have a Series C company Fetch that I believe deals closing today that's raising their Series C around doing that and how they're delivering packages and solving that pain point for large multifamily owners. And they have a great group of investors and a great path to grow into their current clients to really make them a market leader here. And I, I think nobody's really figured out last mile logistics at real profitable unit cost economics here. But if you can take a business like this, that's being in effect subsidized to deliver that, I think there's a lot of high margin add-on business here once a company like this reaches scale. Really excited about that. We have just finished a deep dive on NFTs and are doing a second chapter of that around metaverses. And so learning a lot and having a lot of fun here and have some investments that I think will be expressed around these pieces. But it's been a blast to dive in and get to know that community. My partner, David, leading the charge on that. But we're having a lot of fun with that piece right now as well. And how did you meet your partners and tell us a little bit more about your background as well? So my first business was a trade finance business, tech enabled to do two things. One is verify 100% of our receivables, which is really the key thing in that business. And two, to wrap technology that would allow us to finance some industries that really didn't have trade finance available to them. So more like internet ad spends and things like that, that hadn't been happening. That business still exists today and it's done nearly 2 billion in finance and it does its thing with a great leadership team over there. But I went to school for real estate and urban land economics and started a developer owner operator in New York called Corrigent. And so does everything residential focused from super high end to workforce housing to student housing and, and trading and debt stacks. But the theme there as well is we had built a lot of our own technology to identify properties and acquisitions at some point of every property in New York City categorized by 12 different attributes and had built a lot of the things that a lot of the data providers are sort of doing now internally but also was looking for solutions, both from a product perspective and an operations perspective to make us more efficient. And those things didn't really exist at that time. And so we were very early to that game. I and mean, I think I found my real calling at the intersection of technology and real estate and introduction of venture to really found the firm and grown it to be more of a generalist investor today. And so that was my background. And I was very fortunate to meet up with David Goldberg at that point. David had just exited his business, which was a fashion tech business, similar to 
went the runway for men's clothing and accessories. And we had aligned around the partner we wish we had and, and wanted to build the firm around that. We brought in Aubrey Pagano almost two years ago now, and she was the founder of Bowen Drape and had sold her business as well. And she came in and just was a great synergistic addition to the team. And we've been off and running in this all founder mindset to go out there and be great investors to the companies and the founders that we back. What's your view of the current New York market? I mean, New York, I think, came of age to be a huge part of the venture ecosystem in the U.S. in the last, I would say, 10 years. And there's such a huge number of groups there now. Is it very competitive? Are people working together a lot? What's your sense of that? It's been amazing to be a part of that growth when we were early, I think, to the game there and just watch the community and the ecosystem develop. But I look at the New York ecosystem in a way it feels to me similar to San Francisco. San Francisco people probably have something to say about that, but I think it's just as interesting. It's just as robust. The depth of human capital and actual capital there is super deep and it all feels like it's come together a little bit more. And I think you're seeing LA show up and pull some San Francisco talent and money down there. And this business just becomes broader and more global as time goes by. But New York is as strong as ever. Companies are getting funded. People want to be there. From what I hear, it's a very different story than the San Francisco story and the trajectories of what's back and who wants to to be back and what that looks like. So this year is going to be a, an interesting year in a lot of these respects to see where we all end up and who makes it through this and what the long-term trends are here. But the early trend in New York around the tech ecosystem, around young talent, even around larger companies looking for space that want to be there because the talent pool continues to be there. It's all very positive. Diving into that a little bit more, what's your perspective on the current state of VC? Funding is at an all-time high. Some might say valuations are at an all-time high. <laughs> I thought we were complaining, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nothing wrong with that. But what's your take on that? I think the, the world has generally recognized that this is the future. All these ideas that we've been focused on are the future and that software will eat the world and that these new, more efficient companies are the way people want to do business, that millennials don't want to interact in certain places where they don't have to, and that there's a better user experience for these things. Having said that, we live in a world with cycles and too much capital goes after certain things. And we've had a very good run here. We try to be disciplined with valuations. One of our recent deals that was a little later stage, we said, look, we think this is where it's at and we're not going to be the ones to value you at some crazy tech valuation. If you get it, great, but we don't think you're there yet. And we held firm and we got the deal done. And so maybe that's an outlier for what's going on out there. I think history says it's probably worthwhile to pay a little bit more for the best teams and the best markets, but there's a lot of capital out there and we're seeing it. We raised a fund too. We used to tell a story about the wall of private equity capital that was sitting back there to, to help our companies. And that wall has just grown and it continues to come downstream and you're seeing companies move through faster. But whether a company's worth a billion or 500 million when we're investing early stage, I'll leave that to some of the later stage experts to decide. But regardless of what it is, there's a real multiple and evaluation there that makes sense. And we'll definitely see them go up and down as we go. But this is a long-term game. We're investing super early and you have to be prepared to live through those cycles. And I think the other way that we do that and are disciplined around that is focusing on businesses that have sounder unit economics along the way. Whatever you're selling, right, that unit needs to be sound. We're not the mm -hmm. ones that are going to believe in the WeWork growth strategy that economies of scale come after world domination. We're probably not the right investor for those ideas. What do you think about the prospects of WeWork though? 
I'm curious about that because you would have a perspective on that. I mean, to me, obviously it was overhyped, but when I think about companies that don't want to go back to having a full-time office, but maybe needing a place where they can meet people that are at home in a place that is positive and maybe don't need as much space, that sounds like WeWork to me. I'd, I'd be curious on your thoughts. Look, we work as a company and its valuation. I'm not sure what that is or looks like today, but the concept to me is a concept that's going to be around for a very long time. Right. And I think of it more as space as a service. And when I was running a real estate business, we're still real estate people. We had real estate infrastructure, but operating an office, building out an office, making sure that the office ran on time and on schedule and boardrooms and snacks and foods and lunch and guests and this and that. There's an operation that happens there. And it's nice to have somebody that handles that. And so I think space as a service, whether it's a shared desk or whether some professional firm like Convene or th these other ones that are out there is going to run your space. That's really interesting to me. And, and I remember when I was talking to Chris Kelly at Convene, I said, when you build our next office, office. I want to be on the floor above or below your space. I want to be able to use that stair and come down and to have all the activation that you have down there. And I think that's a really interesting concept. So I think you'll see more companies utilizing expert services to deliver a better office experience than building it out. But there's a lot of problems to be solved here as well. The office build out is one of the most wasteful things that occurs on this planet. These floors just get gutted and stripped and thrown out. Everything gets rebuilt. Everything gets moved. I mean, it's so wasteful. It's so inefficient. It's expensive. There are solutions to be had here going forward that will make all this look different. But I think these are here to stay. I think once these younger companies took rent off of their P&L, it's going to be hard to put rent back onto their P&L. I think it's much different for larger organizations. But they're going to utilize these services, whether in one place or multiple geographies, in different ways. And now think of a corporation that's New York City-based. Maybe they had 5,000 people in the city. Maybe they only need 1,000 there, and they can have either suburban smaller offices for the 4,000 people or give them a, a card that lets them go to any of the 10 WeWorks in all the suburban places. You have one in Westchester, one in Hoboken, one in Long Island. You can service your operation without having to force a commute every day. So you're going to see a lot of different examples of this. And the reality is every culture will work differently. Every company will operate a little differently. But if you are a highly qualified candidate, you will be able to find a job at a company that has a work style that aligns with what you want. If you want to work remote, you can. If you want to be in an office, you can. If you want hybrid, you'll find a good company that's going to offer that. And you're going to see that shakeup happen. And it's happening now and it'll continue to happen. As you were talking, that's what I was thinking about is that it's exciting to be a young college grad these days because you have all these options that weren't around, at least when I was <laughs> out of college. Yeah, no, agreed. And so last July, you and your partners committed $2.5 million as a diversity initiative to support emerging GPs, if I'm not mistaken. Tell us about that. Venture has not been great with diversity. And I think all the movements of last year really shined a light on that. And we talked as a partnership and what could we do to really move the needle here? What can we do that's action oriented, that's based, that could make an impact? And we ran a process. We met with 70 GPs and there's some great talent out there and it's there 
And I think a light was really shined on these groups and, and we backed six of them with that money. It was our partnership money. It was not fund money. And it's been great. And it's just that it's infancy and we've seen all sorts of benefits. We've done deals together. We share deals with each other. We're learning from each other. We've been resources. We've had them follow on in our companies and vice versa. And so it's been great. And I think it was just a way to push it forward with an action item rather than thoughts and prayers, office hours and this type of thing. Yep. We're thrilled that we did it and we've made some great new relationships out of it and some great investments, I think as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And shout out to Mac at Rare Breed. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he's, he's great. Yeah, yes. He's, 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 one of, he's one of the six that- I know. Yeah, I saw that. He's awesome. So at this point, we're going to go ahead and switch over to our four standard question segment. And we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Our first question is our NBCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you'd advocate for, what would it be? This one, I, I was going to really talk about diversity here when it's not necessarily a policy issue, more than an awareness community issue. And I thought that's what it was. There's nothing necessarily in the code that we're unhappy with. I think everything from our perspective runs okay. And I think the advent of safe notes and some of these other things that have really just standardized early business can make business a little more efficient and a little cheaper. I think these are great innovations, but I also believe that they can evolve naturally in, in a more capitalist type of evolution than anything policy specific. So not something that's really come up in our shop that we're focused on or wish something could be changed right now. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? So I do love investing. I'm an investment junkie in that respect. I love doing deals. I did it in real estate. I'm doing it here. So I love that. I love creating new things. I love innovating. I love efficiency. And so there would always be something there. But my other love is really around music. So you say if money wasn't an option, I think of it more like if I actually had a voice or something, I would be a singer or a rapper of some sort. I love music and it makes me happy. And so something around there. Favorite artist, go. Oh, oh, there's so many that- I know, I, really I actually love. hate that question. I, it's it's so, like, I wouldn't it's be tough, able to answer it, yeah. so <laughs> it's fair. It's, uh, yeah. All of them, good, okay. Number three, who is someone that you look up to and why? There's nobody that I idolize, but self-made people blow my mind. It really impresses me. And the stories that are behind real self-made entrepreneurs and you hear the immigration stories and, and they came over with this or that and they started this. And I look up to all of those people. At one point, I want to write a book about all these stories and just and each chapter just being the colorful layers of how people's lives and experiences and what that break was. Because you call it self-made in a way, but everybody had somebody along the way. There was some break, there was some person, there was some opportunity, right? And uncovering that and understanding that fascinates me. Yeah. So hopefully at some point, I will have the time to sit down and, and find a group of people to really uncover that and see what it is. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Do you think that there's one, I'm sure it's probably not just one, but let's go with one for the sake of the time interest of the podcast. One common character trait that these self-made people have in common. That's a great question. I would say if I've seen a pattern, it's people that are naturally curious. They see a topic or an idea, and then they go read a book or research or become an expert there, right? It's that natural curiosity that makes you so well-rounded enough to be a generalist, to be able to manage a business across a lot of things, right? And I think different owners, operators, managers have strengths and weaknesses, but knowing enough about your weaknesses to delegate and put the right people in the right seats, focus on your strengths and, and really run that part of the businesses. But it's that natural curiosity that I've seen in the most successful people. Yeah, definitely. 
Number four is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? So it's really an amalgamation of different advice that I've received and you hear it in different versions and different forms. And I put it together to make it my own a little bit, but it's uh, life is short, love what you do, have fun and do the right thing. You hear these stories where people waited too long or worked too hard and you read the, the 10 things they would have done differently on the deathbed and you get all these data points along the way. And I feel like there's just little threads to all of this that you just can't take any of it and yourself too seriously. And our key value at Alpaca is just to do the right thing day in and day out. And it lets us sleep well at night. You never have anything to hide. And it's just the way that we all aligned with one another and live our lives and the way we wanted to run the firm. That's fantastic. That's great, Ryan. We really appreciate your time and enjoyed learning more about Alpaca. Thank you very much. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Thanasis. Thank you, Jenny. It was a real pleasure to spend time with both of you. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at Proof.VC. Thank you.